You are listening to KLRN Radio, where liberty and reason still reign. This fall, Inspiration 4 launches as the first all-civilian mission to space. And you could be on board. Visit inspiration4.com for your chance to go to space. Dealing with COVID-19 is uncharted territory, and everyone has different challenges. People may feel anxious, down, or overwhelmed. For some, these feelings can lead to changes in sleep patterns, an increased use of alcohol or drugs, or withdrawing from the people around them. If you know someone who's having a hard time coping, you can help by reaching out to talk and listen. To learn more about how you can help someone in need, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. Some people look to the stars and ask, what if? Our job is to have an answer. We have to imagine what will be imagined. Plan for what's possible while it's still impossible. Maybe you weren't put here just to ask the questions. Maybe you were put here to be the answer. Maybe your purpose on this planet isn't on this planet. KLRN Radio has advertising rates available. We have rates to fit almost any budget. Contact us at advertising at klrnradio.com. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are attained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle challenge. The following program may contain coarse language, adult themes, and bad attempts at humor. Listener discretion is advised. What is President Trump's goal? What is his vision? He wants to put an American flag on Mars. Now I can say in less than a day we'll be underway on a mission to Mars. Theoretical themes, radical schemes, chasing our dreams on a mission to Mars. Welcome to the Lost Wonder for the fifth day of the sixth month of the year 2022. I am your host, J.E. Double F. Tonight, talking, wow, aliens, whole lot of NASA, assholes in space, a bit of a smod tease, and much, much more. Tough story. Four. Four, four hostile alien civilizations may lurk in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is home to millions of potentially habitable planets, and approximately four of them may harbor evil alien civilizations that would invade Earth if they could. New research posted to the preprint database ARZIV suggests. The new paper, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, poses a peculiar question. 
What are the odds that humans could one day contact a hostile alien civilization that's capable of invading our planet? And to answer this, Soul Study author Alberto Caballero, a doctoral student in conflict resolution at the University of Vigo in Spain, began by looking back at human history before looking out to the stars. This paper attempts to provide an estimation of the prevalence of hostile extraterrestrial civilizations throughout the extrapolation of the probability that we, as a human civilization, would attack or invade an inhabited exoplanet. To reach his estimation, Cavallero first counted the number of countries that invaded other countries between 1915 and 2022. He found that a total of 51 of the world's 195 nations had launched some sort of invasion during that period. And not surprising news, the U.S. sat at the top of that list with 14 invasions tallied in that time. Then he weighted each country's probability of launching an invasion based on that country's percentage of the global military expenditure. Again, the U.S. came out on top with 38% of global military spending. From there, Caballero added each country's individual probability of investigation or instigating an invasion, then divided the sum by the total number of countries on Earth, ending up with what he describes as, quote, the current human probability of invasion of an extraterrestrial civilization, unquote. According to this module, the current odds of humans invading another inhabited planet are 0.028%. However, Caballero did write the probability refers to the current state of human civilization, and humans aren't currently capable of interstellar travel that we know of. I may have added that little last part. If current rates of technology advancement hold, then interstellar travel wouldn't really be possible for for, for about 260 years. And to to come to that total, he used the Kardashev scale, something I've talked a fair bit on here and on my previous show uh, in the crease. Assuming the frequency of human invasions uh, continues to decline over the time at the same rate that invasions have declined over the last 50 years, then the human race has a .0014 probability of invading another planet when we potentially become an interstellar or type 1 civilization 260 years from now. This may seem like very slim odds, and it is until you start multiplying it by the millions of potentially habitable planets in the Milky Way. For his final calculation, Caballero turned to a 2012 paper published in the journal Mathematical SETI, in which researchers predicted that as many as 15,785 alien civilizations could theoretically share the galaxy with humans. Caballero concluded, that less than one of the Type 1 civilizations, or 0.22 to be precise, would be hostile toward humans who make contact. However, the number of malicious neighbors increased to 4.42 when accounting for civilizations like modern humans are not yet capable of interstellar travel. Now, he goes to say, I don't mention the 4.42 civilizations in my paper because, one, we don't know whether all the civilizations in the galaxy are like us, And number two, a civilization like us probably would not pose a threat to another one since we don't have that technology to travel to their planet. Sounds reasoning why he would leave that out. 
or hostile alien powers doesn't seem like a lot to worry about. Furthermore, the probability that humans might contact one of these malicious civilizations and then be invaded by them is vanishingly small. We'll ignore 2035 for now. If you know, you know. Caballero is a name you may actually have heard of recently, as his name was brought up among the wow signal that blared in a radio telescope on the night of August 15, 1977. The wow signal is considered the best SETI candidate radio signal that we have picked up with our telescopes. Now, it should be noted that while he is doing his doctoral, he is an amateur astronomer, so he, he does this for fun. Um, appearing during a SETI search at the Ohio State University Big Ear Telescope, the wow signal was incredibly strong but brief, lasting a mere 1 minute and 12 seconds. Upon seeing a printout of an anomalous signal, uh, astronomer Jerry Amon scribbled wow on the page, giving the event its name. The now deconstructed Big Ear Telescope looked for message at the electromagnetic frequency band of 1420.4056 megahertz, which is produced by the element hydrogen. Quote, since hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, there is good logic in guessing that an intelligent civilization within our Milky Way galaxy, desirous of attracting attention to itself, might broadcast a strong narrowband beacon signal at or near at frequency of the neutral hydrogen line. Researchers have since repeatedly searched for follow-ups originating from the same place, but they have turned up empty, according to a history from the American Astro Astronomical Society. Now, the wow signal most likely came from some kind of natural event, and probably not aliens, though astronomers have rolled out a few possible origins, like maybe a passing comet or, or something of that nature. Still, Caballero noted that in our infrequent attempts to say hello to E.T., humans have mostly produced one-time broadcasts, such as the Arecibo message sent towards the global, uh, globular star cluster M13 in 1974. The wow signal may have just been something similar, uh, Caballero would add. Knowing that the Big Ears Telescope's two receivers were pointing in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius on the night of the wow signal, Caballero decided to search through a catalog of stars from the European Space Agency's Gaia satellite to look for possible candidates. I found specifically one sun-like star, he said, an object designated to mass 192819822-2640123, about 1,800 light years away that has a temperature, diameter, and luminosity almost identical to our own stellar companion. Caballero's findings appeared in May 6 uh, in the Inter International Journal of Astrobiology. While living organisms may exist in a wide variety of environments around stars quite dissimilar to our own, he chose to focus on sun-like stars because, quote, we're looking for life as we know it, unquote. Given his results, he thinks it could be a good idea to search the star for habitable planets and maybe even civilizations. Quote, I think this is perfectly worth doing because we want to point our instruments in the direction of things we think are interesting, said Rebecca uh, Charbonnet, a historian who studies SETI at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, who wasn't involved in the work. There are billions of stars in the galaxy, and we have to figure out some way to narrow them down, she added. So the truth, 
the truth is is out there, and someday people of Earth will find it. So I guess that begs the question, what about using the James Webb Telescope? Well, we do have some updates on that. We now have a date for our first real image from NASA's Next Generation Observatory. Following half a year of commissioning in uh, space, NASA will release the first operational uh, images taken by the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope on July 12th, according to an agency statement posted June 1st. While Webb officials are still keeping those first imaging targets secret, wait, why? Why? What? What? Our first imaging targets are going to mm -hmm, 2035, people. The agency emphasized that it took five years of work among the several participating space agencies to decide what those first images will show. Although the web team has shared several images already, these were kind of all interim alignment images taken to evaluate the observatory's capabilities. The July 12 images will come after each instrument is calibrated, tested, and given the green light by its science and engineering team. NASA emphasized that despite all the months of careful alignment since the December 25, 2021 launch, it is difficult to predict exactly how the new images will look. The high-resolution infrared view of the universe will be unique, as Webb operates in deep space and has an 18-segment hexagonal mirror that collects sharp images expected to show the first galaxies early in the history of the universe. The new images will be available in full color and will be meant to show the breadth of web science capabilities. This means the images will not only be included, but also spectroscopic data to show elemental composition and other information that astronomers can infer from the spectrum of light. First images uh, package of materials will highlight the science themes that inspired the mission and will be focused of its work, the early universe, the evolution of galaxies through time, the life cycle of stars, and other worlds. All of Webb's commissioning data, the data taken while aligning the, the telescope and preparing the instrument, will also be made public. That said, we do know of at least two targets. Among the investigations planned for the first year are studies of two hot exoplanets classified as super-Earths for their size and rocky composition. And they are the lava-covered 55 Cancri E and the airless LHS 3844B. Researchers will train Webb's high-precision spectrographs on these planets with a view of understanding the geological diversity of planets across the galaxy and the evolution of rocky planets like Earth. 55 Cancri E orbits less than 1.5 million miles from its sun-like star, which is 1 25th of the distance between Mercury and our sun, completing one circuit in less than 18 hours. With surface temperatures far above the melting point of typical rock-forming minerals, the day side of the planet is thought to be covered in oceans of lava. So literally the floor is lava. Planets that orbit this close to the star are assumed to be tidally locked, with one side facing the star at all times. 
As a result, the hottest spot on the planet should be the one that faces a star most directly, and the amount of heat coming from the day side should not really change over time. But this doesn't seem to be the case. Observations of 55 Cancri E from NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope suggest that the hottest region is offset from the part that faces the star most directly, while the total amount of heat detected from the day uh, from the day side actually does vary. While 55 Cancri E will provide insight into the exotic geology of a world covered in lava, LHS 3844b affords a unique opportunity to analyze the solid rock of an exoplanet's surface. Like 55 Cancri E, LHS 3844b orbits extremely close to its star, completing one revolution in 11 hours. However, because its star is relatively small and cool, the planet is not hot enough for the surface to be molten. Additionally, Spitzer observation indicates that the planet is very unlikely to have a substantial atmosphere. That's kind of an interesting choice of targets. Let's bring, let's bring NASA stories back on Terra Firma for a bit, even though they do actually pertain of getting off this stupid little rock. NASA will plan to take another crack at a crucial fueling test of its SLS mega rocket on June 19th. SLS will make its debut on the upcoming Artemis 1 mission, which will, of course, send an uncrewed Orion capsule on a journey around the moon. But before Artemis 1 can lift off, its SLS and Orion need to complete a crucial series of pre-launch tests known as a wet dress rehearsal. You know, I had that once in middle school. No, that's different. In a call with reporters uh, on Friday afternoon, May 27th, NASA officials announced that they plan to start rolling the Artemis 1 out from the huge vehicle assembly building at NASA's Kennedy Space Center uh, Center in Florida to launch pad 39B at around midnight tonight. If the wet dress goes well this time around, the Artemis 1 team can start prepping for an actual liftoff. NASA officials have said they're aiming to launch Artemis 1 in August, though they won't set an official target date until the west dress is complete and all the data has been analyzed. We are one step closer to returning them to the moon. And I really wish, God, I, I, I wish I could kind of do a Joan Rivers impersonation for this next story related to NASA and the moon. NASA has selected two companies to make spacesuits for its Artemis moon program and its future ISS missions. Teams led by Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace with ILC Dover as a major contributor received access to a contract worth up to a total of $3.5 billion to supply spacesuits for future NASA missions through 2034. Like the private outfits that send cargo and astronauts to the ISS, Axiom and Collins don't have guaranteed orders just yet under contract. Now, it should be noted the Collins ILC Dover team has decades of experience uh, supplying spacesuits to NASA, while Axiom is actually a new uh, entrant. And they did talk about SpaceX because they have their own costumes. They they kind of purposely left SpaceX out of this one because they want uh, different companies and redundancies. And it makes sense. You don't, if everything NASA does is SpaceX, then why have a NASA? But they will, 
They will have opportunities to vie for task orders for missions as soon as 2025, including a demonstration mission outside the ISS and the debut Artemis moon landing during the Artemis 3 mission, which is still targeting uh, a date of 2025 or 2026. As space, uh, spacesuit development proceeds within the companies, NASA will be certifying alongside to make sure that they are ready for astronauts. Then once the suits are ready, they will actually be used. And I am curious how they will work, if at all, for a Mars environment. Will they have to have a different set of um, spacesuits? And it's a good question to ask because NASA has recently shown off early plans to send astronauts to Mars for 30 days. The agency released its top objectives for a 30-day two-person Mars surface mission on May 17th and asked the public to provide feedback on how the planning is going. Submissions were initially due on May 31st, but that deadline was extended to June 3rd to allow for more. NASA aims to launch astronauts to Mars by late 2030s or early 2040s. Making that vision a reality will be challenging, assuming the funding and technology come into play at the right time. For example, the round-trip travel time would still be about 500 days, given the distance between Earth and Mars. Gravity, or I guess technically more the lack thereof, will also be a problem. As current generation spacecraft look nothing like those seen in the movies, uh, The Martian, which was a 2015 movie. The astronauts will arrive on the red planet after months in microgravity and face a significant road to recovery, even to operate in the partial gravity of Mars, which is roughly one-third that of Earth. NASA suggests that one way to address this issue might be by having the crews live in a pressurized rover during the mission. We want to maximize the science so we allow them to drive around before they become conditioned enough to get in the spacesuits and walk and maximize that science in 30 days. Mission plan is in the early stages and, it should be noted, could change considerably. But so far, NASA envisions using, uh, envisions using for a habitat-like spacecraft to ferry crew members to the Red Planet using a hybrid rocket stage powered by both chemical and electrical propulsion. Four people would make the long journey, with two alighting to the surface, somewhat similar to a model seen in the Apollo program with three astronauts. That would, that would kind of suck. Can you imagine traveling all the way to Mars and not being the two that get the touch on Mars? It, oh, that, that would be rough. Roughly 25 tons of supplies and hardware would be ready and awaiting for the crew, delivered by previous robotic missions. These supplies would include a crew ascent vehicle already fueled and ready to go for the astronauts to make it off Mars and back into orbit around the planet. So that leads, that leads me to the next question. We have talk spacesuits, moon landings, and even Mars, and yet really only briefly touched and mentioned SpaceX. Is it kind of because of the revised look that's going on with Elon Musk? Well, kind of not really. NASA has announced it has plans to buy five more SpaceX crewed flights to the ISS. 
the agency announced a, quote, sole source modification, unquote, to its contract with SpaceX, which operates the only American system currently carrying NASA astronauts to and from the ISS. The expected value of the modified contract was not disclosed at, the, at that time. The five-flight purchase adds on to the $3.5 billion contract awarded to SpaceX in February for three additional astronaut missions with its Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon capsule, Crew 7, Crew 8, and Crew 9. Now, for its perspective, Crew 4 is in space right now, Crew 5 should launch in September, and Crew 6 is scheduled for spring of 2023. Assuming the newly purchased five flights continue in sequence after Crew 9, that means, of course, doing the math, they purchased up to Crew 14. NASA noted on that Wednesday it may need to use additional SpaceX flights as soon as 2026. Ordering more Dragon missions that may fly even after Starliner is ready provides important redundancy. And the goal of this redundancy is to maintain safe space station operations and allow each company to work through really any unforeseen issues that could arise as private industry builds operational experience with these new systems. NASA added, that its most recent modification to the SpaceX contract does not preclude the agency from making additional changes later as transportation services needs arise. Aside from providing services to NASA, Dragon has flown private crewed missions to orbit, namely September 21's uh, Inspiration 4 and AX-1, which recently just landed. And the spacecraft will also be a key part of the Polaris program, which is the new billionaire-backed venture that will see Inspirations for uh, Jared Isaacman return to orbit several times aboard SpaceX spacecraft. Polaris flights are anticipated to involve Dragon and a forthcoming uh, SpaceX system under development. So that is some good news from a government organization. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. We could use a little bit of the good news. But unfortunately, I might have to have this worked out. We have... We have a new recurring segment to add to the show. Assholes in the FAA. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA. And let, let me know if this sounds familiar. Has delayed the completion of the environmental review of SpaceX's Starship program yet again. This time, allegedly, by just two weeks. June 13th. Agency published a draft PEA in September and estimated that the final version would be wrapped up by the end of the year, but the FAA has repeatedly delayed the final PEA, generally by a month at time, citing the need to analyze the public comments submitted in response to the draft board and, and discuss next steps with other government agencies. Boom. Right there is the clue. Other government agencies. Seriously, this is this is what sixth, seventh time, if not more, that this has this has been pushed back. Oh, but that's not it's not the only recent attack on Elon and SpaceX. No, not not even close. The Sierra Club, the Carrazo Comacrudo tribe of Texas, and nonprofit Save RGV has joined together in a lawsuit against the Texas General Land Office, Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush, and Cameron County in Texas. Forget this. Closing 
Boca Chica Beach periodically for SpaceX operations during Starship tests. Mm -hmm. The Boca Chica Beach is near, of course, SpaceX's Starbase facility where it is building Starship rocket prototypes and their massive super heavy boosters. Quote, Restricting access to a public beach, as the defendants have done, violates the Texas Constitution, the Sierra Club said in a statement. None of the allegations have been proven in court, and the statement does not actually name SpaceX among the entities pursued in the lawsuit at this time. But the disputed Boca Chica Beach is just down a road a bit from SpaceX's Starbase facility. And since Starbase is currently under an FAA environmental review, it's not coincidental. The fully reusable stack is intended to deliver people and cargo to the moon, Mars, and other destinations. But in 2013, according to Sierra Club's statement, the Texas legislature amended the Texas Open Beaches Act to allow spaceflight operations to close beach access. Then, in 2018, the club added SpaceX built a rocket facility 1,500 feet from the beach's water edge. So, the Texas legislature amended. So, they did it legal. Anyway, they go on. The club alleged the beach was closed for 196 hours in the first three months of 2022. And that 2021 saw more than 600 hours of closures. Quote, the defendants have closed Boca Chica Beach so frequently that Rio Grande Valley residents have seen their access essentially disappear. The Carrazo Comacrodo Nation of Texas, which holds the land of Boca Chica sacred, has been ignored while they lose access to their ancestral heritage. Hmm. 196 hours. Do you know how many hours are in a year? Let's, let's let's do the math. Number of hours in a day times the number of days in a year, non-leap year, and we have a, around 8,760. So it's essentially disappearing, right? Right? God, I hate the fucking Sierra Club. With that, let's take a break.
Welcome back to everyone but those fucktards at the Sierra Club. You know, you know who they, who they remind me of? And now, assholes in space! Chinese asshole! Chinese asshole! Too harsh? Nah, nah. I don't think it was too harsh. Let's go on with the stories. FAA researchers say Starlink could threaten national security. Wait, wait. Um, I'm being told by my executive producer that I might have that a little bit wrong. Let me. Oh, yeah. I, I, I see it now. Okay. Let's, let's, let's try this again. China military researchers say Starlink could threaten China's national security. FAA, China, China, FAA. Is there any difference? Sorry. Chinese military researchers have called for the development of a hard-kill weapon to destroy Elon Musk's Starlink satellite system if it threatens China's national security. The researchers drew attention to Starlink's huge potential for military applications and the need for China to develop countermeasures to surveil, disable, or even destroy the growing satellite mega-constellation. Their paper was published last month in the journal China's Modern Defense Technology. The Chinese researchers were particularly concerned by the potential military capabilities of the constellation, which they claim could be used to track hypersonic missiles, dramatically boost the data transmission speeds of U.S. drones and stealth fighter jets, or even ram into and destroy Chinese satellites. China has had some near misses with Starlink satellites already, having written to the U.N. last year to complain that the country's space station was forced to perform emergency maneuvers to avoid close counters with Starlink satellites. A combination of soft and hard-kill methods should be adopted to make some Starlink satellites lose their functions and destroy the Constellation's operating system. The researchers, led by Ren Yanzin, a researcher at the Beijing Institute of Tracking and Telecommunications, which, by the way, is part of the Chinese Military Strategic Support Force, wrote in the paper. Hard and soft kill are the two categories of space weapons, with hard kill being weapons that physically strike the targets, like missiles, and soft kills, including jamming and laser weapons. China already has multiple methods for disabling satellites. These include microwave jammers that can disrupt disrupt communications or fry electrical components, powerful millimeter-resolution lasers that can nab high-resolution images, and blind satellite sensors cyber weapons to hack into satellite networks and long-range anti-satellite missiles to destroy them, according to the U.S. Department of Defense. But the researchers say that these measures, which are effective against individual satellites, won't be enough to scuttle Starlink. The Starlink constellation constitutes a decentralized system. The confrontation is not about individual satellites, but the whole system, the researchers wrote. The researchers also outline how to attack or how an attack on the Starlink system would require some low-cost, high-efficiency measures. Now, earlier this month, uh, yeah, well, May, early last month, 
Elon Musk wrote on Twitter that Russia had made multiple signal jamming and hacking attempts on Starlink. A note from Dmitry Rogozin, the director of Russian space agency Roscosmos, to Russian media also appeared to threaten Musk, accusing him of supplying militants of the Nazi Azov battalion with military communication equipment and claimed that Musk would be held accountable. Musk responded by writing on Twitter, If I die under mysterious circumstances, it's been nice knowing you. China may be looking at alternative ways to counter Starlink because ASAT missiles create hazardous conditions for all nations operating in space. Now, I don't think China gives a rat's ass about that. But explosions in orbit are dangerous not just for their own, but also because of the many thousands of debris pieces they actually do create. This space shrapnel has the potential to cause serious damage to satellites and space stations. In November 2021, if you remember, a Russian anti-satellite missile test blew up a defunct Soviet era spy satellite in low Earth orbit and created a debris field of over 1,600 pieces that actually forced the U.S. astronauts aboard the ISS to hide in their capsule. The U.S., China, India, and Russia have all carried out ASAT tests in the past, creating space junk in the process. The U.S. announced a ban on further ASAT tests in April. In October 2021, Chinese scientists claimed to have developed a way to, to avoid the debris problem with an explosive dice device that could be packed inside a satellite's exhaust nozzle, safely blowing up the satellite without making any mess in a way that could be mistaken for an engine malfunction. According to a recently released report from the U.S. Department of Defense, China has more than doubled its number of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance satellites since 2019, from 124 to 250. At the beginning of 2020, or 2022, China's total number of satellites, including non-ISR ones, was 499, which is second only to the United States, 2,944, which it should be noted, of which Starlink makes up more than 2,300 of them. So the Chinese were not, not being done being assholes either. And this this next story... I feel personally attacked. Here we go. A proposed Chinese mission would look for nearby potentially habitable alien worlds by launching a spacecraft to make ultra-precision measurements on how orbiting planets make a star wobble. For this mission, called the Close By Habitable Exoplanet Survey, or CHESS, the scientists would use a method called micro-arc-second uh, relative astronomy. This technique involves taking ultra-precise measurements of the positions and movements of stars compared with a set of background reference stars to detect the perpetrations of a star resulting from gravitational influence of exoplanets as they orbit their stars. This method would provide estimates of the masses of exoplanets and the distance at which they orbit their stars, which, in turn, might reveal if these exoplanets have the potential to host life. The European Space Agency's Gaia Space Telescope is using the same method to create a 3D map of a billion stars in the Milky Way. Other planet-seeking missions, such as NASA's TESS, uses a different technique called the transit method, which looks for dips in the luminosity of a star as a planet crosses it. 
However, this method requires planets to orbit edge on with respect to the observer. Chess would be much more focused than Gaia or Gaia, targeting 100 sun-like stars within 10 parsecs or 33 light years. While surveying a relatively narrow section of the stars, Chess would be able to comprehensively study those systems for exoplanets. Quote, the hunt for habitable worlds about nearby sun-like stars will be a great breakthrough for humanity and will also help humans visit the Earth twins and expand our living space in the future. Ji Zhanggu, a, a research professor for the Purple Mountain Observatory at the China, Chinese Academy of Sciences and principal investigator of the CHESS mission, told Space.com. As of today, over 5,000 exoplanets have been discovered and confirmed so far, including around 50 Earth-like planets in the habitable zone, both but most of them are hundreds of light years from Earth. Chess would carry out its work from the Sun-Earth Lagrange Point 2, about 9,300,000 miles from Earth, where Gaia, Spectre, RG, and the James Webb Space Telescope are currently operating. Chess would be an absolute fabulous addition to an exoplanet exploration, said Elizabeth Tasker, an associate professor at the Japan Aerospace uh, exploration Agency. While the potential number of targets is small, the measurements of planet mass from worlds orbiting our neighboring K, G, and F-type stars would be a valuable addition to our current data and step towards identifying habitable worlds. See? I should feel absolutely personally assaulted for this story, right? That was at least six habitables. Bastards. A. Quit laughing. Executive producers over there laughing. I know you gave me this story, damn it. He thinks because he's going to be like in high school coming up this next, later this year, that he can do this. Maud, save me, please. You heard me. Smod, save me. Speaking of, an asteroid up to three times larger than a blue whale, will zoom past Earth Monday, June 6th, at more than 16,000 miles per hour, according to NASA. And I, it should be noted, no, no petunias were spotted, so I think we're safe. The asteroid, named 2021 GT2, is predicted to safely miss our planet by more than 2.2 million miles, or roughly 10 times the average distance between the Earth and the Moon. Now, astronomers first detected the space rock last year, hence the 2021 designation, um, in kind of estimated size between 121 and 272 feet wide. And while that sounds pretty big, between one to three times that the length of a blue whale, it isn't really large enough to be considered a potential hazard to Earth. 2021 GT2 is an Aten-class asteroid, meaning... It orbits the sun more closely than Earth does, once every 342 days in this case. And its orbital path crosses Earth's orbit. Astronomers know of more than 1,800 such asteroids, many of which are actually considered potentially hazardous. After June 6th, its next close approach to Earth will occur on January 26, 2034, when the asteroid passes within 9 million miles of our planet which is actually going to be significantly further out than this upcoming approach. And, oh, man, can you imagine if it was January 2035? <laughs> I could have dropped my favorite hashtag going right now, 2035, down in chat. 
Maybe they'll adjust it later. Fingers crossed on that. So let's go to this next story, which involves nuclear vessels. You heard me, nuclear nuclear vessels. Add the Defense Innovation Unit to a growing list of U.S. government organizations furthering their work in nuclear power and pace. The organization, which seeks to get the military ready to use emergent commercial products, announced two prototype contracts on May 17th, quote, to demonstrate the next generation of nuclear propulsion and power capability of a spacecraft, unquote. The ultimate aim is an orbital flight demonstration in 2027. The contracts went to two companies, Ultrasafe Nuclear and Avalanche Energy, to demonstrate nuclear propulsion and power capabilities for small spacecraft that would operate in cislunar space. The values of these contracts were not disclosed at the time of the release. In part of the U.S. military's pressing focus on cislunar activities to keep an eye on commercial and government activities that will ramp up in up there in the coming decades, including the International NASA-led Artemis program that seeks out people to put, put on the moon. If all goes to plan, ultra-safe nuclear will demonstrate Ember Core, a chargeable nuclear radioisotope uh, battery useful for, for uh, propulsion and power. This next-gen radioisotope system will be able to scale to 10 times higher power levels compared to plutonium systems and provide more than 1 million kilowatt hours of energy and just a few kilograms of fuel. Avalanche Energy's Orbitron seeks to trap fusion ions and electrostatic fields with assistance from a magnetron to keep the electrons closer to the nuclei than what is usually possible. The resulting fusion burns the and then produces the energetic particles that generate either heat or electricity, which can power a high-efficiency propulsion system. Compared to other fusion concepts, uh, Orbitron devices are promising for space applications as they may be scaled down in size and enable their use as both uh, a production of propulsion or as a power source. It should be noted another military organization seeking cislunar nuclear technology is the, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. On May 4th, that organization announced it is ready to move forward on a project to design, develop, and assemble a nuclear thermal rocket engine for an expected flight demonstration in Earth orbit by 2026. You know, it seems... Like a lot of people really want to find a way to get off this planet as quickly as possible. You you you, you think they know know something? They have to, right? And speaking of nuclear, future fusion reactions inside Tokamaks could produce more, much more energy than previously thought, thanks to groundbreaking new research that found a foundational law for such reactors, was wrong. The nuclear fusion research led by physicists from the, oh, hell no, I'm not even trying this Swiss Plasma Center. We're just going to call them Swiss Plasma Center. Oh, my God, no, I'm not trying to say that. Well, they have determined that the maximum hydrogen fuel density is about twice the Greenwald limit, an estimate derived from experiments more than 30 years ago. The discovery that fusion reactors can actually work with hydrogen plasma densities that are much higher 
within the Greenwald limit, they are built uh, or will influence the operation of the massive Eider uh, Tokamak being built in southern France and greatly affect the designs of Eider's successors called the Demonstration Power Plant or Demo uh, Fusion Reactors. The exact value depends on the power, but as a rough estimate, the increase is an order of a factor of two in ITER. Ritchie is one of the leaders on this research project, which, compi- which has combined theoretical work with the results of about a year of experiments at three different fusion reactors across Europe. And it's, yeah, R- Ritchie is, um, he's physicist uh, Paolo Ritchie from the Swiss Plasma Center. Um, they from three different fusion reactors across Europe, um, which one's in the UK, one's in, in Switzerland, I think, and I no idea where this third one is. Um, but he's also one of the lead authors on the study about the discovery, published May 6th in the journal Physics uh, Review Letters. Now, donut-shaped tokamaks are the one of the most promising demo- uh, designs for nuclear fusion reactors that could one day used to generate electricity for power grids. Scientists have worked for more than 50 years to make controlled fusion a reality. Unlike nuclear fission, which makes energy from smashing apart very large atomic nuclei, nuclear fusion could generate even more energy by joining very small nuclei together. The fusion process creates much much less radioactive waste than fission, and the neutron-rich hydrogen it uses for its fuel is comparatively easy to obtain. And it is the same process that powers stars like the sun, which is why controlled fusion is likened to having a star in a jar. But because the very high pressure at the heart of the star isn't feasible on Earth, fusion reactors down here require temperatures hotter than the sun to operate. The temperatures inside the TCB uh, tokamak, for example, can actually be more than 216 million degrees Fahrenheit, almost 10 times the temperature of the fusion core of the sun, which is only about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Several fusion power projects are now at an advanced stage, and some researchers think the first tokamak to generate electricity for the grid could actually be working by 2030. More than 30 governments around the world are funding the ITER tokamak. Now, ITER... Uh, just means the way in Latin, um, which is due to produce its first experimental plasmas in 2025. ITER, however, isn't designed really to generate electricity, but tokamaks based on ITER that will, called demo reactors, are now being designed and could be working by 2051. At the heart of the new calculations is the Greenwald limit, named after MIT physicist Martin Greenwald, who determined that limit in 1988. Researchers were trying to find out why their fusion plasmas effectively became uncontrollable. They, they, they expanded outside the magnetic fields where they were contained by within the, the uh, chamber. When they increased the fuel density part past a certain point, and Greenwald derived an experimental limit based on tokamak's mi- minor radius, the size of the donut's inner circle, and the amount of the electrical current passing through the plasma. Although scientists had long suspected that the Greenwald limit could be improved upon, it has been a foundational uh, rule of fusion research for more than 30 years. For example, its guiding principle of the ITER uh, design. Now, 
The latest study, however, expands on both the experiments and theory that Greenwald used to derive his limit, resulting in a much higher fuel density limit that will both increase the capacity of ITER and impact the designs of the demo reactors that come after it. The key was the discovery that a, a plasma can actually sustain a greater fuel density as the power output of a fusion reaction increases. Now, it's not yet possible to know how such a large increase in fuel density will affect the power outputs of the tokamaks, but it is likely to be significant. And research shows greater fuel density will make fusion reactors even easier to operate. It makes it safe, sustainable fusion conditions easier to achieve. It allows you to get to that regime that you want so that fusion reactor can work properly. And I think if we don't mess things up too badly and something doesn't happen in 2035, that Earth could be quite a fun and interesting place to live in the very near future. Stuff like this can change the world in ways that we don't, we can't understand as long as we get out of our own own fucking way, which lately is harder to do than it should be. With that, I think we need to go grab a drink, sit by the campfire, and get ready to gaze up at the night or morning sky. And before, actually, let me, let me, let me deviate a, a second. I hope you all were able to enjoy the Tau Hercules on the 31st. Well, the number of meteors was a lot less than people hoped for. I have to say, the executive producer and I saw some amazingly bright and long-tailed meteorites. Two ranking as my, my all-time best I have ever viewed. It really, really was amazing. So here is what's happening in these next two weeks. June 5th, the eastward prograde motion of the ring planet Saturn through the background stars of eastern Copernicus will slow to a stop. After Sunday, it will commence a westward retrograde loop that will last until October. On early June mornings, the yellowish dot of Saturn will be visible with the unaided eyes in the lower part of the southeastern sky from the time it clears the horizon around 1 a.m. local time until the dawn twilight hides it. Retrograde loops occur when Earth, on a faster orbit closer to the sun, passes more distant planets on the inside track, making them actually appear to move backwards across the stars. June 6th. A Rocket Lab Electron Rocket will launch NASA's Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigational Experiment called Capstone Mission to the Moon from the Mahahi Peninsula in New Zealand. June 7th, SpaceX will launch the Dragon CRS-25 cargo resupply mission to the ISS station from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Yes, that means we probably get more food these cargo ships uh, trips lately to the ISS have been really lacking in descriptions of what kind of food they're carrying. It pisses me off a little. I love talking about that kind of stuff. June 10th, a SpaceX Falcon 9 will launch the NILESAT-301 geostationary communication satellite from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. June 11th, on Saturday morning, June 11th, the faster motion of the extremely bright planet Venus will carry it past distant Uranus in the eastern pre-dawn sky. 
The two planets will be close enough to share the view in an eyepiece of a backyard telescope, but bright white Venus will outshine blue-green Uranus by a factor of 8,000 times, making the fainter planet difficult to see against the glare. On Saturday, Venus will be positioned a thumb's width below of Uranus. They'll be nearly as close on the following day, with Venus shifting left or east by one degree. Observers at southerly latitudes, where the planets will appear higher in the darker sky, will get the best view of this conjunction. June 14th, the full moon of June, known as the Strawberry Moon, arrives at 7.52 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It will also be the first supermoon of the year. So that's it for tonight's show. Thank you for tuning in when and however you do. You can find me at Stoner Brewing Co. on Twitter. Catch me in two weeks for the next Lost Wanderer. Stay tuned for Sunday night with Alan Ray. It's always, always a great listen. Don't forget Monday night here on KLRN Radio, America's Podcast Network. Join Lou and Amish Secreto on CyberChill at 9 p.m. Eastern. Special thanks to NASA, SpaceX, Space.com, New Scientists, Scientific America, Fizz.org, and many more for the great information on the stories tonight. And thank you, as always, to my executive producer for being the inspiration to do this show. I hope you enjoyed the show, learned a little bit, and maybe had a laugh or two as well. The universe is a pretty big place. It's bigger than anything anyone has ever dreamed of before. So if it's just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. Right? When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful. A miracle. Oh, it was beautiful and magical And all the birds in the trees Well, they'd be singing so happily Oh, joyfully, oh, playfully Watching me But then they sent me a